Hey everybody, and welcome to Word on the Trail. Word on the Trail is brought to you by you, the listener. If you enjoy this podcast and you and you support what we're doing uh, here at Kickstone Media, head on over to patreon.com forward slash KZM, and uh, please consider supporting the podcast. Uh, we we really appreciate it, and uh, every single dollar of um, the support that comes from Patreon goes back to this podcast. It goes back to getting better guests on the show, um, producing more content, uh, whether it's around this podcast or just completely separate content like videos or um, more speed ratings or stuff like that, articles. Um, yeah, if you support, if you if you want to see more stuff from Kickstone Media, you want to see more content that's specific to Nordic sports such as Nordic skiing, cross-country skiing, biathlon, ski jumping, Nordic combined, uh, it, it, you know, one of the big themes on this podcast is it, it takes a community, you know, to support an athlete and uh, just like just like that, it takes a community to support this mission and support our own sport. So uh, if you enjoy this content and support our mission, head on over to patreon.com forward slash KZM, as in Kickstone Media. Today's guest is Carly Wynn. Carly and I, uh, we, we touch on our history. Uh, we raced against each other in the Bill Koch era, and I'll be honest, uh, it was a big milestone in my young racing career when I finally beat Carly Wynn, which I don't think happened until maybe I was like a freshman in high school. Um, Carly is uh, in high school, and as a young Bill Coker, she was an exceptional ski racer, and she still is, but uh, it just... Yeah, she was she was really the one to beat, even for us guys. So um, yeah, Carly was. Uh, I knew her in the New York scene. She went to college at Dartmouth, um, and then I didn't really hear from her very much until uh, just recently. We got uh, reconnected via social media, and I saw that she's still racing. She's still competing, um, but she's doing it extremely uniquely, uh, if that's a word, uniquely. That, uh, I'll let the English majors decide on that one. <laughs> but she has a very unique lifestyle, not typical of what you see from a person who graduates college and has aspirations of racing on the national scene or international scene. So uh, without further ado, I give you Miss Carly Wynn. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Word on the Trail. I am your host. My name is Brian Halligan, and today I am recording with a longtime friend of mine back from the New York Bill Coke days, Miss Carly Wynn. Carly, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. So uh, where, where are you right now? Where are you located? I'm currently in Bend, Oregon. Bend, Oregon. Sweet. Yep. Now, uh, it, it's my understanding that you just uh, traveled. You just came back from somewhere. Yes. Is that correct? I just spent the last month in Vermontish area. I was working with Zach Caldwell down in Putney, Vermont, trying to uh, make some overhauls to my skating and generally enjoying uh, fall in New England. Yeah, on the on the east coast or on the west coast here, you know, there's a lot of pine trees, and we don't get that 
that fall foliage that uh, no you know, it's not the same <laughs> yeah, synonymous with the east coast but no that's that's great you got to get back there and did you see your family when you were back out east yeah i did um for a short period of time i spent most of my time in vermont new hampshire um but saw the family in new york and yeah just kind of reconnected with my new england community um which is awesome so that's definitely definitely a community i want to stay in touch with absolutely Cool. So it sounds yeah. it sounds like you're training full time and you're getting ready for a race season coming up. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about uh, your life at the moment? Because um, I think it's it's really unique. Uh, it's obviously, you're training for the season coming up. Um, I assume you have mm-hmm. some pretty big goals uh, in terms of racing, um, but you're sort of yep. independent. You're not really with a team. You're not on a team. You're not. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Do you have Uh a coach? I guess (laughs) that's a big question. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So absolutely what I'm doing is a little bit unique. I certainly didn't um, have a plan for it when I went into it. I just sort of made it up as I went along. So I, I am independent sort of, but I definitely have a lot of support and like coaching and that sort of thing. So um, Zach Caldwell is my like primary coach, although I don't work in person with him very often. Um, but he's my go-to for questions, and certainly, you know, I just spent like the last month doing some technique work with him and stuff. So I would definitely say he's currently my primary coach. Um, although I've definitely had lots of other um, kind of just like help along the way. I came out to Oregon um, over a year ago to work with Bernie Nelson out here for a summer. Um, So that was kind of the start of all of that. So I'm working with kind of a variety of folks. Last year, I had like five or six different wax techs throughout the season. Um, You know, my dad was my first coach and is still like one of my go-tos for physiology questions and wax questions and all that sort of stuff. So it is a hodgepodge um, on that front. I can tell you, I guess, a little bit about like what what my lifestyle structure kind of looks like if you want. It's um, certainly a little unconventional. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear it. Um, just to recap, the last that I heard about yeah. Carly Wynn, you know, we, we grew up in the Bill Koch uh, scene together. You're a little bit older than I was, um, but we were about that same age in the New York skiing Bill Koch community. Um, you, you had some really mm-hmm. incredible results in high school uh, on the national scene. And then you went to Dartmouth, correct? Yep. Okay. So you went to Dartmouth, you skied for Dartmouth on a really good college team. Um, yeah. And then after you graduated, uh, I didn't really hear about, you know, where you've been, what you've been doing. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I know, I know the last couple of years you have been racing on the super tour circuit. Uh, so, so yeah. is that correct? Is that a, is that a quick catch up? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I I definitely ghosted right after Dartmouth. Um and and then when I did come back to ski racing, I did it very quietly, which which was by design. Um I was just um in a bit of a fragile place with skiing. I was really burnt out after college and 
you know, declined a lot of opportunities to continue with Nordic, to continue with biathlon, which was my original plan. Um, and I ended up taking that year after college completely away from skiing. Um, I actually worked at Alta, um, pretending that I was an alpine ski bum, <laughs> uh, which didn't work out great for me, truth be told. <laughs> Turns out I'm not an alpine <laughs> ski bum and everybody there could tell. So <laughs> I was totally out of my depth and really lonely. <laughs> but um, but I certainly learned a lot that year. So I, I did decide after that that I wanted to get back to ski racing, at least in a casual capacity. So the following winter, I raced Eastern Cups and lived in Vermont, close to Dartmouth, close to where I went to school. And yeah, just sort of felt that out to see if I still liked skiing or not. And turns out I do still like skiing. <laughs> Great. So um, now you're getting, you know, how did you come to this uh to the situation that you're in now where you're not necessarily, you know, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people in your situation would try to find one of the elite teams around the country because there are a few in Alaska, yeah. I don't know, in Idaho, Utah, Vermont, obviously. Yeah. Um, so how yep. did you come to this decision that you were going to try to, I wouldn't say go at it alone because obviously you're, you have a lot of support, but um, go at it independently and uh, really try to be your mm -hmm. own, you know, entity. <laughs> oh my goodness. There are so many things that, that kind of go into that. It wasn't a one-time decision, first of all. It wasn't like a sit down and like weigh my options for teams versus like weigh my options for, you know, going independent. Um, it just sort of evolved to be this way. I, um, after my year of racing Eastern Cups, that spring, um, one of my friends that I knew from Dartmouth skiing was talking about coming out to Bend to train for the summer. There was a collegiate group out here and that sounded really fun. Um, and so when I looked into it, I discovered that there was also a very small elite team in Bend. And so I got in touch with the coach and asked if I could come out and train for the summer and kind of feel things out um, for the team. And so the team didn't really end up, um, there were only two other athletes um, besides myself. And this year, one of them retired and the other one uh, moved to another team. So the team wasn't really... Um, like the future of my skiing here in Bend, but it did provi provide me a really good training group for the summer um, and an opportunity to work with a couple new coaches. Um, so that kind of opportunity was what brought me out to Oregon. Um, and then I stayed because training was really good. Um, I had an opportunity out here for, um, like a chance to set myself up financially to be able to fund a season. Um, because even if I was going to look at um, one of the other elite teams in the country, I probably wouldn't have been looking at very much funding for my first year on the national circuit. So no matter what I did, I needed, you know, a way to keep life expenses low and a way to have some sort of really flexible income um, so that I could make it work around my training schedule and my travel schedule. And those opportunities kind of arose for me here in Bend. So I stayed. Well, it sounds, I mean, that's like the biggest issue, right? Yeah. I mean, there, are always, there, there always comes this point where, every sport biathlon noco jumping skiing there comes a point where you know life is expensive and not only are you paying for the coaching and the equipment and the travel and stuff like that but just like paying for rent and food yeah. every month you know yeah. it's it's a 
it's an expensive lifestyle. And uh, so you felt like you were able to find a solution to this major problem in the Nordic community? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I accidentally walked into a really good situation um, in that I stumbled upon some really cheap housing here in Bend that allowed me to stay here and, you know, start building a community and start building, you know, other financial things. I already had a small online business that I had started the previous year. Um, and the goal of that was to give myself some you know, location independent income, no matter whether I was ski racing or, you know, no matter what I was doing. So I already had that. What was the business? Endurance coaching. I went with what I know. And so I set up, I set up a small sort of service where I um, work with athletes entirely online and um, write training plans for them and follow along with their training, you know, talk on the phone, cover how things have been going, get them ready for races, that sort of thing. So I've been working with mostly runners, actually, although I, you know, also work with skiers and would like to eventually work with primarily skiers. But running seems to be, um, you know, where the demand is right now or where I've found the demand. Um, So I already had that going um, in 2017 when I came out to Oregon. And so from that point, I just... Um, you know, I had a housing situation that was going to work for me financially in Bend. I had my online business and I just needed to establish, you know, a little more on the ground income here in Oregon. And so I, um, just kind of took that opportunity. And now that I've done that and established myself, that's a huge motivator for, you know, wanting to stay here, um, at least to stay here, to stay based here. I'm certainly not here year round. I'm only here about half the year, actually. That's great. So with your with your uh, endurance coaching business, is that enough to uh, fund a lot of your expenses and fund your race trip or your race season? Yeah, that accounts for about half of my income at this point. And then I supplement that with um, primarily with a cooking service, actually, that I started the year that I was racing Eastern Cups. When I was living in Vermont, I just started a, like a personal chef service um, for families primarily. And that's really fun. I've always really enjoyed cooking. I had some work, you know, cooking throughout college. And so that was sort of an easy transition to make. And that's something I can take with me to like new towns and like set up pretty quickly. I go to families' houses in the afternoons, cook dinner for them. Everybody gets home and hot dinner's ready on the table. And it's something I can do, you know, if I'm in Bend for like a month right now, and then I'm going to be gone all winter, you know, for racing, I can do it when I'm here and drop it when I'm gone, um, which is, uh, that works really well for me as opposed to trying to work with an employer and work on somebody else's schedule. Wow. You're a serial entrepreneur. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> That's awesome. What did you study in school? Were you a business major? Oh, I studied psychology and creative writing. Wow. (laughs) So, which are two things that I'm very much still interested in and pursuing, but they're not making me any money at the moment. (laughs) So how how do you go about, um, you know, getting families to sign up for your, um, your cooking and, and how do you go about getting athletes to sign up for your, for your coaching? Yeah. Um, very, very different strategies for the two. Um, the cooking is pretty easy because with my schedule, I really wouldn't want to cook for more than one or maybe two families. Um, 
the family that I'm cooking for here in Bend is more than enough work. Um, so once I got established with them, I really didn't need to keep looking for anybody else. Um, it's, it's plenty of work throughout the week for me. Um, and so that was, uh, mostly just a matter of finding the advertising venues, I guess, in Bend. Um, because the town I came from previously in Vermont and like in the New Hampshire area there, I had my system set up there for advertising and it's just different in a new community. So it just took a little bit of poking around trying to see where people look for services that they need and where people send out requests and email lists are a great place to start. And, um, you know, websites that already sort of promote services like that, um, like care.com um, is a great place for, you know, people that are offering some sort of care services, babysitting primarily, but also like tutoring and instructional things. And so I, I think the family that I'm cooking for now, I actually found on care.com. I just looked through like families listing, you know, what they were in need of and found a family that looked like they could use what I offered and got in touch. So it wasn't that challenging when you have like a very specific service like that. You just have to find out where the places are that people are going to look for that yeah. service. The power of the internet. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Um, the coaching is very different. A lot of my business through that has been um, word of mouth, but I also, um, last year I wrote a couple, I partnered with um, a couple races to write a generic training plan for um, the athletes that were registered for the race, a couple of half marathons. So a big enough race that people were, this is running, of course, um, that a big enough race that people were really looking to be prepared for it. And so I just got in touch with race organizers a few months out and, you know, made my proposition to them, which was basically like, I want to write this training plan for free for your athletes. It's up to them if they like want it, want to use it. I'll be available to them for questions if they want. And that just gets me a little bit of exposure. It gets me a little yeah. bit of experience. Um, and so I ended up connecting with, a couple of athletes that way that wanted to continue working with me one-on-one -on -one after the race was over. And that was a really, really challenging, really fun way to do it. It was so much work because when you've got, you know, 200 athletes running a half marathon, yeah, the training plans were generic, but there were like 14 different generic versions based on what people like needed and, you know, their mileage backgrounds and what their goal was for the race. So it was, it was a lot, a lot of work. But once I did it once, you know, it was a lot of work up front, but it's easy now to apply that to other races. That, so I've never run a half marathon or a marathon or an ultra or anything like that. Is that, mm -hmm. is that typical for the, the race to say like, Hey, you signed up for the race. Here's a training plan that this. No, no, I've, I've never done a race that offers that. Um, and I, yeah, I, I have never actually, I'm sure there are races that do. Um, but I don't think it's super common No, So I think it was, it was something that really appealed to, a lot of the athletes and it was, you know, yeah. you know, no strings attached for yeah. them. <laughs> they just had this free training plan to follow or not. And a coach on the other end that would respond to their questions. Well, that's, <laughs> so it was a good deal a for them. That is a genius marketing strategy because like you said, now you have, you know, you did a lot of work up front, but now that you have these training plans, it just comes down to kind of, you know, copy and pasting and maybe adjusting it 
you know, a little bit here and there. Yeah. So, I mean, you could, you could partner with races the entire summer and all over the you know country. How did you come up? How did you come up with this idea? Um, that's a great question. I, I don't really know. I mean, I spend a lot of time just sort of daydreaming about this sort of thing when I, I don't like to like sit down and have hardcore think sessions about business that really takes the fun out of it for me. And <laughs> I'm the exact um, opposite. I, that's the best part for me. <laughs> really? <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, I I have my best ideas, you know, when I'm like at the climbing gym or like in the shower or somewhere was, that like your brain say, is like, not thinking. Yeah. yeah. When you're training out on a, like an OD or something. <laughs> yeah, totally. Somewhere where my brain is really unstructured. But I don't know. I think I probably just... I pr- some some random thing must have like triggered it or like inspired me. It wasn't it wasn't like a big think session. It it, it probably just occurred to me one day, you know. And it just makes sense because it's I'm always looking for ways to like just connect with as many athletes as possible that are like in my specific niches. And so, you know, that's a really great way to do it. Like a race is a very specific collection of folks that are all training for the same thing. And, um, but at the same time, it's going to offer a wide variety of just athletic types and backgrounds. And, you know, everybody came into that race with, I had everything from I've never run in my life to, you know, I'm going for a half marathon PR here. And, you know, it's, great exposure like for me to a bunch of a bunch of different folks and a bunch of different um like strategies and so I learn a lot about what people need and about like what is constructive in a coaching program you know folks gave me feedback afterwards on like what was good about the program what they wished like it could have included or things that they didn't use and just all this stuff so then working with future races or future individuals i have so much more data on like what's actually useful for people do you find that um like in on the coaching side of things you end up thinking of things that you hadn't thought of before because people are asking you specific questions have you been able to learn and adapt your own training plan based on having to write training plans for other people? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I I think I've learned a lot about um, like what works for other people um, because what works for me doesn't necessarily work for everybody. I'm not sure that I've learned anything from any of the athletes that I've worked with that um, – has like really caused me to do any major changes to how I train. Um, the thing that I feel like I get sort of the most um, like interaction there is um, when I'm telling my athletes to rest and recover and take things easy. I then end up emphasizing that more in my plan too. You know, I realize that I'm like telling everybody like you need to be getting off your feet after these workouts and like, you know, you need to not schedule this workout for a day when you have a million other things going on that afternoon and, you know, stuff like that, that, you know, helps other athletes fit training into really full lives. I spend a lot of time emphasizing recovery and that definitely influences my training and my plans. It definitely, you know, is a reminder to me that I also need to be doing that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just funny because uh, being a biathlon coach now, uh, there's a lot of, you know, you have 
you're working with 10 different athletes and every athlete picks up something a little bit differently. So when I, you know, if I give them Mm -hmm. uh, a drill or something to focus on while they're shooting, I have to almost end up saying it at least four or five times differently. So that way each athlete kind of picks it up. Mm -hmm. And it's fun. It's funny. The more I do that, the more I'm like, oh man, like maybe I should try this in my own shooting, (laughs) you know? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It, it's really interesting how, you know, you go, you're, you're coached throughout your entire career. And I mean, the same thing can be done with uh, like technique. Um, you're coached your entire career. And it's once you start having to, coach, then you realize, I don't know, maybe it's like a conscious thing where you're really thinking about the process or whatever it is. But I mean, like, and I think, you know, as a coach that gives you just a multitude of different ways to look at the same thing. Um, and that's the sort of thing I do sort of lose in the online coaching. Um, but I definitely get that in, um, you know, one-on-one stuff with online coaching. I'm mostly like running numbers and, Mm -hmm. you know, scheduling things and helping people plan for races and helping people plan their diets and that sort of thing. Um, But I do like to do, you know, in-person coaching when I can. And so I spend, you know, like I said, about half my time on the West Coast now and the other half the time split between the East Coast and traveling. And um, the East Coast is where I have a lot of athletes that I work with in person. So I have a couple like groups of juniors that I work with when I'm out there and also athletes that I'm working with individually. Um online as well. And so I just spent a month doing that. And certainly in that um, setting, I find myself learning a lot, um, just thinking in different ways about how to describe a particular technique or like why this thing works. Um, Certainly, I learn a lot. And it's just, it's really great for me to, um, you know, spend so much time focusing on my own technique and then go out and like try to teach that to other people. It's it's just a classic learning strategy, really, to teach to somebody else. So that's super fun about getting to work with um, athletes in person. Absolutely. I, just in my experience, I've seen, you know, so many, I, I'd say so many athletic, really promising athletic careers have come to this wall where it's like, okay, do I keep going? Do I keep trying to achieve my goals? Or do I have to put it aside and do I, you know, have to get a job and start making money and, and join the quote unquote real world? Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like, and just from what I've been reading in your blog, it sounds like that you sort of live uh, the life that you want to live and you try to obviously, you know, with the, with the coaching and making money with, with the cooking and stuff like that, you, you do what you can to make ends meet. Um, do you think this is repeatable for other athletes around the country who maybe eventually get to that point in their life where they're like, all right, you know, I think I have a lot of quality racing years left, but I just can't make it work. Yeah, totally. This, this is probably my favorite question to dig into, um, because this gets into the whole idea of lifestyle design and intentional living. Um, you know, for me, the life that I'm living now is a really funky combination of a variety of things that I love to do. And, you know, ski racing, straight out of college, I was looking at basically one choice if I wanted to keep ski racing, and that was to join a team that was going to give me 
funding um, to make this happen. And I just wasn't ready for that. I didn't want that at the time. I wasn't sure if I was ever going to want that. And yet I wanted to keep racing. I thought I just, the, the path that was available to me didn't look like the one that I wanted to be on, which is what led to the athletic identity crisis, which I've written about on the blog. Um, and it took a while. It took like a year and a half, two years of pondering it and experiencing some new things to discover that I could be a ski racer on a different path than the ones that I had seen laid out for me. And that's, that's something that's true, no matter whether ski racing is what you like to do with your life or something completely non-athletic. So often people get hung up thinking that the only way to do whatever it is they want to do is the way they've already seen it done. And that's just not true. It's just really, really hard sometimes to think of these new paths. So for me, you know, I I had a year of like total crisis, didn't even know what to do. At the end of that year, I had a period where I sat down and asked some really hard questions. And those questions were things like, okay, how am I going to fund myself for ski racing if I'm not on a team? Like, where am I going to live? How am I going to support the parts of myself that want to do other things? Like, how am I still going to travel? And I was really excited about this idea of digital nomading and, you know, van life. That's something that I'm really passionate about and interested in. And I I wanted to keep feeding those parts of myself too. And so once I had some hard questions laid out, that was when I was able to start um, coming up with the answers to them. The first question I chose to address was how am I going to fund a single race season? And that was the year that I was racing Eastern Cups. So I first established a fixed location income. I started my cooking service. I knew that I wanted to be in control of my schedule. That was a priority for me. I am not afraid of self-employment. You know, I really wanted, I really wanted to do that. Um, and then I built the online business after that because the, the second financial question was, okay, how am I going to take this money on the road, take this income on the road and, um, and that sort of thing. So that's just sort of like a, a look into the, sort of mental um, trajectory um, in the early years. But I, I really think that, you know, when you're looking at doing something that you haven't seen someone else do or trying to do something and you're not sure how to do it, the first step is like getting to identify what the really pressing questions are. And most people are just hesitant to do that because it's so intimidating because you have these like awful impossible seeming questions just like staring you in the face and it's worse almost to face them you know in their in their entirety in their clarity it's worse to to have a clear look at them than it is to Absolutely. just think of them as impossibilities yeah i mean it's so it's so hard to really sit down and and ask yourself the tough questions, right? It's, it's easy when like a coach or a third person, you know, they, that's kind of their job is to challenge you with those tough questions to really sit down. And there might be, you know, something subconscious deep down that you really know that you don't want to admit, but (laughs) the, the sooner you can, you can sit down and ask yourself that question and, you know, come to that conclusion, 
that's the sooner that you can get past it. And, you know, some people, some people it's, you know, I'm not cut out for this ski life. I'm, I'm not, it's not going to work. Other people, they don't want to take that, you know, as a, as an option. And it comes down to like you figuring out how to make it work because there's obviously ways to make it work. There's like an infinite amount of ways to live this life that we're living. (laughs) And, uh, just because, you know, obviously, yeah, like you said, the, the traditional join a team, get funding sponsors and whatnot is, you know, the traditional route. It's not the only route. Um, I hear a lot of people saying like, I don't know what I want. And I think, Often that may be true, but I would also propose that there is a handful of cases where people really do know what they want, but it sounds so ridiculous to them to even say it to themselves that they they feel like it's the equivalent of not knowing what you want. So like for me, two or three years ago, like I want to be a ski racer, but I don't want to join a team and I want to retain this degree of freedom and independence and ability to move around. And I want to travel and like, you know, I want, I want to do all these things. Those are all very much things that I knew I wanted, but the rhetoric that I was telling myself is I don't know what I want because it didn't seem possible to make all of those things happen or to combine all of those things. It just seems like, it seems like sometimes I don't know what I want is really a cover for I think what I want is impossible. I'm afraid that what I want isn't going to happen for me. Do a lot of your client do your clients know that you're also training and, you know, have athletic aspirations? Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of a huge part of my I guess branding for you marketing majors out there. <laughs> um I I'm you know, the image that I'm trying to build of myself and to, you know, portray to everybody, to athletes, to people that just like to follow my Instagram, to potential sponsors, you know, to whoever it may be, is is this image of all of the different parts of my life that I've combined. I'm a semi-pro athlete with a semi-nomadic lifestyle. And that's become like my little catchphrase and self-definition. But yeah, I want everybody that I'm interacting with no matter how I'm interacting, whether I'm coaching them or they're coaching me or we're travel adventure buddies or they're, you know, offering me a service or whatever it is. I want everyone to know, you know, what I'm doing, what the lifestyle is that I've built, that I'm continuing to build and grow. Um, And I just think that's, that's fun. You know, people like to see other people truthfully and authentically and, and I want people to see the unusual combination of things that I'm doing because I think it inspires people to like go do something unconventional themselves. And it's not that the unconvention is necessarily what makes this particular lifestyle valuable, but it's what makes this particular lifestyle possible. And I just think a lot of people are out there who have dreams and goals and talents that maybe are only possible through a slightly unconventional, you know, means. So I like to make what I'm doing as visible and like clear as possible. So what are, what are some of your goals for this upcoming winter? Yeah, that's always a hard question because goals come in so many different boxes. Um, Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I think as a, as a, junior athlete, I thought of goals almost entirely as results goals. 
And now results goals are really a tiny part of the whole collection of goals. So um, my primary goal is to have fun, which sounds super cheesy, but it's absolutely true. Um, I spent so many years not having fun with ski racing, and I went through this whole crisis and came back to skiing and loved it. And, you know, last year managed to race on the Super Tour circuit and still have fun. And so that is goal number one for this year is to keep having fun. Um, <laughs> beyond that, um, you know, last year was a huge like trial and error thing for me. I had really no idea uh, what it was going to be like to try to travel full time all winter and to like piece together coaching and whack support and all of that um, on top of travel logistics and, and stuff like that as an independent um, athlete. And so I just basically learned a lot and some of it worked fairly well. Some of it didn't work as well. I ended up sick and injured at the end of the season and started the season sick and overtrained. So the season really got very truncated. My season last year was pretty much just January and February. So, you know, the goal this year is to extend that season a little more. I want to be a little more ready at the beginning of the season and also able to, you know, maintain it through the end of the season, um, keep stress levels low enough, keep travel smooth enough, you know, that by the time March rolls around, I'm still feeling good. Um, so that becomes kind of a day-to-day -day goal of minimizing stress as much as possible, sleeping as much as possible, like really taking into account how, you know, the things that I'm doing are affecting my body and affecting my recovery and, you know, supporting my training, um, you know, because if I want to be feeling good in March, you know, that starts now, that started months ago, really. So, um, yeah, extending the season a little bit beyond what I was capable of last year, um, getting to all the races in a healthy and fit state, um, smoothing out my travel logistics, you know, ironing out some of the kinks last year from, you know, trying to get WAC support along the way. I have some more resources this year, a little more readily available to me just from my experiences last year. So yeah, make the whole season a little more streamlined. Um, and then that those two goals kind of give way to results goals after that. I was just about to say that it's it sounds like if you can, you know, really pinpoint down those two goals, especially the happy one, um, mm -hmm. the the results based goals, they're just, you know, a product of that. Yeah. And, exactly. you know, and I always I, it's so it's really interesting because I was the same way in high school and for my first couple of years out of high school, I was very results based. I was constantly comparing mm -hmm. myself to the name or to the number that was next to my name at the end of the race. And you you sure. really can't do that because, <laughs> because it's, you don't know who's going to show up to the race. You don't know who you're going to be racing. Mm -hmm. I could go to, yep. I, you know, I could go to a small little, you know, backyard race in, uh, you know, the middle of the Adirondacks and have a one next to my name. But, you know, you could, you could go to, junior worlds or Eastern cup or super tour and have like 101 next to your name, you know? So you really can't, you can't yeah. look at the number next to your name as your, as your value. Um, you, you have to, right. you really have to, and I really try to stress this with my athletes is you really have to think about 
the process, right? Did you execute good technique? Did you execute good warm up and good cool down? Um, you know, training throughout the summer. That's that's a big. A lot of people mm-hmm. start thinking about goals when it's time to race, but you know, you should have mm-hmm. goals going into the summer too, and hitting your hours and hitting your your benchmarks for technique and for shooting scores and stuff like that for biathlon. Um, and if you if you can oh, execute those process goals, the result is just going to be the product. And uh, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, how. When do you think you came to that realization after you took that year off from skiing? Yeah, I think I think it was kind of dawning on me all throughout college, um, in part because as a high school racer, I pretty much knew what number was going to be next to my name. And yeah, we yeah, all <laughs> it, it didn't really tell anybody very much about me, honestly, because it it didn't ever change. And I wasn't forced to like grow um, necessarily. That was a bit different later in high school when I wasn't racing for the high school anymore. And I was racing where I really needed to be for my own growth, Eastern Cups and um, a little bit of national and and one international race. It, it that was where I needed to be, and and at that time, you know, the number started changing. But I, I don't think I really um, understood yet the difference between results oriented goals and other types of goals. I don't think I understood the difference between um, between different types of results oriented goals. That I think kind of occurred to me during college a little bit but mostly it was um like during my year off and like my first year back racing eastern cups i was reflecting on my college experience um you know college racing is a great opportunity for that sort of learning because it's um it's fairly constant i you know my standings within the eisa circuit followed a pretty predictable path. Um, so it was like every race I knew I was going to have substantial competition and I didn't know if, you know, I didn't know for sure what the number was going to be next to my name, but I knew what range I was shooting for. So it gives you like enough, enough consistency that you sort of start to know where you stand in the field, but it's competitive enough that anything could happen on any given day. Um, and yeah, I do think reflecting back on that, it sort of occurred to me that, you know, you might come in fifth or 15th in a, you know, college carnival and either one could be a really good race. Um, and I certainly had that experience. So I, you know, my top place in a carnival was third, but I don't really look at that as a very good race. I don't think I executed it well. It wasn't part of a like pattern of growth. It was just a fluke. And, you know, I had a seventh or eighth place or a fifth place somewhere, maybe even 11th or up into the teens, you know, that I thought was a really good race. So, you know, I definitely learned then. If I didn't learn it then, those were the experiences that I then learned from later when I looked mm-hmm. back on them. You So not only are you faced with this major challenge of being a semi-pro, semi-nomadic athlete, sure. um, but you also have a few eating restrictions. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got yeah. some food allergies. So <laughs> I know nutrition is 
extremely important, especially for endurance athletes who want to perform at the highest level. Um, could you, and I mean, this is great. I didn't even realize that you were doing this, you know, you had a cooking business. So, um, on your blog, you have a foodie Friday where you post some, some pictures and some recipes for some (laughs) foods that you're, you're eating. Um, how do you overcome this roadblock of getting the proper nutrition that you need in order to make sure that you're fueling your training and you're fueling your racing? Yeah. So nutrition, not a problem. It's not hard at all. Um, I, if I cook the food myself, I can eat anything except the specific things that I'm allergic to. And the allergies and nutrition really go, go well together because I often have full control over what I'm eating. I cook everything myself for safety reasons. Um, and I cook with like really basic raw ingredients because that's healthy. Yeah. But it's also how I'm going to avoid um, allergy issues, cross-contamination issues, you know, that's pretty hard to cross-contaminate an egg or a head of broccoli, you know, Mm -hmm. processed food is dangerous for me. And so that just makes it super easy. Um, and I know that's, that kind of sounds nuts, but, but like the allergies actually really help me, um, eat healthily and eat a nutritious diet. Um, I'm not, I'm not like so greatly restricted that I have difficulty getting certain nutrients. So that's awesome. The difficulty is safety when I'm traveling um, because I do travel a lot, um, whether it's for racing or training or just for travel's sake, adventure and seeing new places. And, you know, I, I travel in very different style depending on what the purpose of the travel is. And so sometimes I might be cooking over a camp stove in the back country. And sometimes I might be sharing a kitchen with a dozen other athletes. And sometimes, you know, I might be staying at a hotel where I don't have a kitchen. So, um, that is a challenge. And that's also one of those things that looking at it coming out of college and looking ahead at traveling for racing or for pleasure or for whatever else. Um, I really didn't know how I was going to make it work and it kind of was terrifying. Um, so yeah, but I mean like everything else, you just, you come up with strategies and you throw yourself into, into new scenarios. And I've done a handful of international trips at this point. And, um, you know, you, you just sort of work it out as you go along. And I can talk about like specific examples or specific strategies for handling it if, if that's what you want, but it, it gets into, yeah. there's a lot of detail that goes into yeah. that. So that's well, up I to mean, you. If, uh, if, if there's enough people who reach out to me and say they want to hear some of your specific strategies, um, maybe we can have you on the podcast again to talk specifically about food. Yeah, um, that'd be awesome. But, but people can go over to your website, right, and find yeah, some blog absolutely. posts that you've written about it. Uh, what's yeah. the website? And it's all it's all through your uh, endurance company, right? Yeah, endurance efficacy. So it's just the word endurance, and then efficacy is E F F I C A C Y. Cool. Yeah, and then that's where you can find Carly's blog. Um, some tips, awesome pictures of her being semi-nomadic and (laughs) yeah, good stuff over there. Um, so, 
speaking of the blog and food, I was reading uh, some of your stuff and I noticed this summer or maybe it was last summer, you did a stint of ketosis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I wrote a blog post about this. Um, ketosis is a funky like metabolic state um, in which your body is not burning sugar for energy. It's burning ketones, which are like a compound that comes from breaking down fat. Um, and so the ketosis diet is a really, really, really high fat diet um, and very low in everything else, um, in particular carbohydrates. Um, if you want to be in a state of ketosis, you have to eat fewer than 50 grams of carbohydrate a day, um, preferably below 25 grams. And that's extremely difficult. Um, you know, obviously the first thing that you cut out is things like sugar and refined carbs and things like that, simple carbs. But if you want to eat a salad, even without dressing, that's probably going to put you over your carb limit for the day because vegetables are really much wow. all carb. So, <laughs> yeah, so it's very, um, it's very, uh, you sort of, you have your specific foods that you can eat and there's not a ton of variety. Um, so especially when you have food allergies on top of it, um, because a, a lot of folks doing ketosis uh, really go pretty heavy on the nuts and the nut oils and the nut butters. And I can't eat any of those things. So I ended up doing a lot of really high fat meats and dairy products Um and that was pretty much how I did it. Um, so you don't eat a lot. You eat very small um, volumes of food um, because one uh, gram of fat has it powers you twice as much as um, as a gram really? of carbohydrate or of protein. Um, so like the kill, yeah, the the kilocalories contained in a gram of fat is more than twice as much as in um, carbs or protein. So if you're going to eat, you know, a hundred calories worth of fat, it's going to be a very, very, very small quantity. Like a tablespoon of butter is a hundred calories of pure fat. Um, versus if you were going to eat like a slice of bread, um, that slice of bread is, you know, five or six times the size of the slice of butter, but it would be like about the same number of calories. So yeah, really small quantities of very, very high fat food. All the research that I've or not not research, but the I mean I've I've heard about this ketosis diet for a little mm -hmm. bit just through some of the other podcasts that I listen to. Mm -hmm. um, the the a lot of the stories that I've heard of people going into ketosis is they have very high maybe they didn't specify that it was high fat meat, but it seemed like they were it, they said they were eating mostly just like raw meat with like or not raw meat but meat with like no condiments or anything. Um, and yeah. maybe mm -hmm. I was under the impression that they were looking for energy from protein. I didn't realize that they were looking for energy from fat. Yeah. So protein is kind of, protein is one of the things that doesn't get talked a lot about in ketosis. Um, it's not like with carbohydrates where you have to keep it below a certain amount, but the higher 
percentage of your calories is coming from fat, the easier it's going to be for your body to work in ketosis. So protein just sort of becomes like this leftover thing because you can't just drink olive oil all day. You know, you have to, you have to eat something. <laughs> and trust me, drinking olive oil wasn't the best thing I'd ever tried. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of a lot of the ketosis diets are really high in meat and so there's going to be quite a bit of protein thrown in there but a lot of the time lean proteins um you know really get touted as the the like best things for you dietarily speaking and in ketosis that's not the case if you're going to eat a piece of meat you might as well eat a high fat piece of meat so that you're you know continuing to work with your body in ketosis um but eating protein won't like kick you out of ketosis in the same way that eating carbohydrates will. Hmm. Do, does fruit have a lot of carbs? Yeah, fruit's pretty much exclusively carbs. So uh, I didn't eat fruit at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, my carbohydrates came um, mostly from vegetables when I was doing ketosis um, and a little bit from dairy products um, because yogurt has like a little bit of. Um, lactose in it. Lactose being a sugar is, is a carbohydrate. So like, yeah, primarily, primarily things like zucchini that are like one of the lowest carb vegetables and, you know, things like iceberg lettuce and that sort of thing that have no nutritional value whatsoever, but at least add a little bulk to a meal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> things like that. Um, that was like my primary source of carbohydrate during ketosis. Wow. So did you, did you find yeah. yourself like hungry all the time or were you able to you know keep yourself fueled yeah that's that's a really tricky question i was hungry all the time in the beginning because i wasn't getting enough calories because once i would hit my like i was keeping track of all of this pretty strictly so i have all the numbers from it once i would hit my 50 grams of carbohydrates for the day i just stopped eating and it took me a couple of weeks just to figure out how to how to time it basically you know if i i had to plan it pretty carefully if i'm going to have yogurt today you know and i'm also going to have part of a zucchini like you know i need to make sure that I need to make sure that i'm you know not going to limit myself too early in the day so i was i was really really hungry for the first couple of weeks just because i wasn't able to get quite enough food but once i figured it out um I wasn't hungry at all, actually. I mean, I was getting enough calories and the lower volume of food didn't matter. Um, the really interesting um, hunger-related effect that I experienced, I mean, the whole reason I tried this was because I wanted to see how it would affect my energy you know, when I was training. And I did this in April and May when I wasn't really training. I was just kind of bopping around, doing some light endurance stuff, traveling, you know, recovering from race season, et cetera. Um, so I wasn't, I didn't want to risk like compromising a serious training block. Um, but I did want to see what my energy levels would be like, um, you know, because I had heard you know, from folks, a lot of like ultra runners and people that are doing super long distance endurance feats love ketosis. And it is true that I could go out for extremely long things and not be hungry. I, I think the most dramatic example of that for me was I went on a seven hour run in the Grand Canyon and I ate before I went out, I had like a hard boiled egg dipped in mayonnaise and didn't really eat anything else for the next seven hours. And like in a normal like glycogen burning state, you would bonk because you can't store infinite glycogen 
But as long as you have non-essential body fat, if you're burning purely fat, burning purely ketones, you won't bonk. And so being in a healthy body where I have non-essential body fat, I could run for seven hours without needing food, <laughs> which was awesome. <laughs> that that's that's incredible. So, like, do you think? Do you think um, like training that has different blocks? You know, you have an endurance, you have a, a distance block, or a base block, or a volume block, as it's called. Um, sometimes you'll have uh, you know a high intensity block, and then obviously there's racing. Do you think we mm-hmm. could? an athlete could mirror their dietary block to go along with a training block. Like if you knew you had a, a, a long distance block coming up for a couple of weeks of just really trying to get some volume in, could you, do you think you could induce the ketosis to kind of help you out with that block? Do you think you're, or That's are you not getting the, question. are you not getting the training maybe that you would need? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And it, it sort of implies the flip side of my, my super long Grand Canyon run, um, which was that I couldn't do any intensity in ketosis. I just could not pick up the pace beyond easy, easy, just distance training. Um, And I wouldn't want to try, nor would I advise anybody to attempt ketosis on and off for short periods of time. I think it's too extreme of a change for your body to flip-flop back and forth and it takes a chunk of time to get into ketosis so it took me right about seven days of being consistently below 50 grams of carbohydrate and like above 70 percent of my calories coming from fat and during that time i felt awful you sort of go through what's known as the keto flu and it's your body still trying to burn glycogen when you have no glycogen. So it's just like a constant state of bonk all the time. <laughs> so if you're going to do ketosis, you want to stay in it long enough to make those few days worth it. Definitely not something I would want to do in the middle of a training block. Were you, um, were you taking said, your blood? How did you know you were in ketosis? I was doing um, urine strips and blood analysis is more effective. It's a it's a more precise way of guaranteeing that you're in ketosis, but the urine strips will tell you how many how much like what your ketone concentration in your urine is. Um, and your urine is obviously not what is circulating through your body and like fueling you, your blood is. So blood tests would be a slightly more effective way of doing it. But for me, I mean, they're very expensive and they require a little bit more like medical um, evaluation. So the urine strips were just something that I could do on my own, mostly to give me an idea of um, whether my ketone concentration was constant. So I could, you know, keep track of what I was eating. And, you know, I had a pretty good idea of whether ketones were going to be really, really high or really low, um, based on whether I had a really low carb day or not, and how long I'd been kind of at that threshold. But the the urine strips just kind of gave me an added measurement in addition to just how I was feeling and what I was recording in my food log. But I would say, you know, to go back to your question about uh, kind of manipulating your diet around training blocks, you can definitely do that very effectively, um, just to a lesser extreme. Um, ketosis is a pretty extreme dietary state, but different different forms of training burn different macronutrients preferentially. So, you know, if you're going to be doing 
a huge amount of like long distance, really easy training, you are going to want some fat in your diet because all the carbohydrates in your system are going to be burned up, you know, 40 to 60 minutes into your workout. So, you know, by the flip side of that, if you're doing a lot of high intensity training, you're not really going to have time to ever get around to burning that fat. So I think a lot of athletes um, can successfully manipulate their diet um, based around the kind of training they're doing and, and just on a, you know, a day to day basis, you know, if you want to have some sugar, some chocolate milk, some ice cream or whatever, right after a long distance workout is the time to do it because that's when your body's trying to replenish lost glycogen stores. So I think that amount of day-to-day and week-to-week dietary manipulation is absolutely an effective, you know, strategy to employ for endurance training. Yeah. It makes you have to earn, you know, the the sweets and the junk food, right? <laughs> Sure. Psychologically, it works, but physiologically, it makes sense, you know? So uh, it's all said and done. You did this experiment on yourself, which is awesome (laughs) because, you know, when you go to to a lot of athlete (laughs) blogs, it's, oh, I went for a roller ski today, two hours, saw a bird. I don't know. You know, it's like, it's a lot of monotonous just doing that. So when I opened up your blog and I started reading, I was like, holy crap, like she's doing experiments on herself and she's, you know, like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is this is quality content here but um so it's unusual anyway yeah. so all done what is your big takeaway from this experiment you know has it helped you has yeah. it helped you with your diet at all has it helped you with your training uh, ketosis did not work for me as a as a diet that would you know help me sustain training i i was actually really surprised to find that i really couldn't do any sort of intensity at all. So pretty much by mid-May, I kind of needed to be done with it because I needed to get down to some some training again. (laughs) So something that wasn't just endless seven-hour runs. (laughs) So, you know, know, of course, the rest of the body complains about that degree of endless running. So, you know, for me, it was like, okay, I did this. I got through the keto flu. I had some awesome super long distance workouts, but I tried to do just like a local casual race um, in Oregon at the end of May. And it was really frustrating to try to race like that. And then I just didn't recover afterward. I felt awful for like three or four days and was just like, all right, this is stupid. Now I feel like I'm hurting my body. So went back to eating carbohydrates, but I did, I did kind of carry over a few of the dietary changes I had made. Um, the primary one just being mindfulness about sugar, which is something that I had wanted to do for a long time. But, you know, holy cow, we all have our weaknesses. And I definitely have a sweet tooth. And going cold turkey on sugar for like six or seven weeks, however long I was in ketosis, really helped because I came out of that and I wasn't really craving sugar. So I didn't give myself the sugar. Um, I bought a jug of maple syrup and I threw out all my refined sugars. And you know, I'm using really, really small amounts of maple in baked goods and energy bars and that sort of thing. But I don't really eat a lot of sugar now. And that was just like something huge that I got out of ketosis that I wasn't like planning on. I wasn't going into it thinking like, oh, this is going to be a, a key for me and like, you know, not eating dessert ever again or something like that. Um, but it did really help me keep my sugar consumption pretty low after that. Wow. Cool. Well, um, I like to uh, I like to give my guests an opportunity at the end of the podcast to kind of give some shout outs to either some sponsors or just some people or communities that help them get to where they are now. So, uh, who are who are some shout outs that you'd like to give? Uh, go for it. <laughs> yeah, well, 
the first person always has to be my dad, Mike Wynn, because he got me started in athletics in general, certainly in skiing. He was my first coach. And, you know, like I said earlier, still um, one of my first go-tos for any questions I have about training, physiology, et cetera. Um, and yeah, just a guy that taught me to really love what I'm doing and, and to love the process. You know, he introduced me to the idea that um, skiing and training in general is more than results and that the process is something you really have to love. So that's just, yeah, always, 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 always my first shout out. Um, and yeah, I mean, at this point, um, for my, my specific situation right now in my, my present ski racing career, Zach Caldwell has to come next and Caldwell sport. They are, you know, now providing me with some awesome coaching and technique work. They are absolutely the go-to for, you know, any equipment related things. If you need skis or wax or bindings or roller skis or, you know, whatever it might be, uh, clothes even, you know, they've got awesome stuff. And of course, Zach is, Zach is kind of world renowned as the ski guru guy. Definitely knows how to pick a good mm -hmm. pair of skis. So, um, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but like also the friends and, um, just like community that I've found that are like offering me things like housing, you know, my housing situation here in Bend and when I travel for races and, you know, the folks that, that put me up and like offer me their kitchens and, and that sort of thing so I can make my food allergy stuff work. Like those little details, that's how I'm making it work. Like as an independent athlete, keeping, keeping my expenses low, that's absolutely the way it happens. So those people are, are absolutely critical. Great. Cool. And, and just one more time, um, what is, what is the website, your website that people can go and find more out about you and also your lifestyle and, um, yeah, your, your coaching. Yeah. It's endurance Efficacy is spelled E F F I C A C Y. And yeah, the website really represents a whole combination of things that are that are making my life what it is right now. But my most recent blog post is about my fundraising campaign for this year. So I definitely should have thrown that in there. That's a great place like for people to, there's a whole thing on there about like what we've been talking about on this um, podcast, like how I got to be where I'm at now and what semi-nomadic, semi-pro means. And so if people are interested in that, they can see like a description of how that works logistically and financially. And that would be the place to start if folks want to reach out or support me in some way and also win stuff. There's a raffle and like, you don't have to donate to the fundraiser to enter the raffle. So there's definitely some cool stuff on there. Cool. Well, Carly Wynn, thank you so much for uh, the podcast. And um, yeah, I really hope uh, everything goes well this winter. And now that we're both on the West Coast, maybe we'll run into each other or something like that this winter. Oh, we could um, definitely make a run-in happen. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not at all confident that it would just happen accidentally because we're both going a million different directions. But if we, if we make it an intentional goal, I think we can true, probably true. make it happen. Great. Well, best of luck this winter. It was good talking to you. And uh, yeah.
Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Um, I know I say I enjoy every episode, and I do, and I, I thoroughly enjoy every single conversation I have with uh, my guests. This one, just, I don't know if you could tell from listening, but I was getting really into it. Just We touched on so many topics that are really uh, of interest to me personally, uh, including, you know, the designing the, your own lifestyle for for what you want, you know, not subscribing to the standard lifestyle of, of what society says you should be living. Um, there's so many different ways to be living this life, millions and infinite, infinite number of ways you, you can be living this life. And it's really cool that Carly has found a way that she can do what she wants. She can do what she loves. And she's covering, you know, the, she's checking all the boxes uh, in terms of expenses and, and stuff like that so that she can live this lifestyle. Um, also, just the whole conversation about ketosis. Uh, I haven't talked much about nutrition and and stuff like that on this podcast with many of my guests before, but uh, ketosis is something that I've kind of um, looked into uh, for, you know, what sort of effects it would have uh, on an endurance lifestyle and a training regimen. So um, it was really cool when I was starting to talk to Carly about getting on the podcast. I started reading her blog, um, really going in depth into some of her posts. And I saw this post about ketosis and I just was like, I have to talk, I have to bring that up because this is so fascinating. Um, If you don't know what ketosis is, I encourage you to maybe go check it out, do some research. Um, I wouldn't suggest just diving full in and going for it (laughs) without doing your proper research. But it's, it's pretty fascinating, and there's also a couple other uh, dietary, um, I don't like calling them diets because immediately everyone thinks you're, you're on, you know, weight loss. Like, you know, I, I don't, I try not to eat junk food, and I try not to eat too much, you know, sugar and, and processed food, like Carly was saying, um, and I was telling someone, you know, oh, that doesn't really fit into my diet, and they're like, why do you need to go on a diet? You're, you know, you're not fat or anything like that, and so I don't like calling it diet because it's not associated with weight loss. It's just about what you put into your body. Um, but there's a lot of alternative quote unquote diets like that, that are pretty interesting. And I, I am curious to see, uh, or to hear what effects it has on Nordic training and, uh, endurance training in general. So, but, uh, yeah, guys, if you enjoy this podcast and you enjoyed this episode, please consider heading over to patreon.com forward slash KZM and uh, support the podcast. Uh, for your support, you can get uh, exclusive content, um, including uh, this, this extra credit content that I have with Carly. Okay, first question. Where is your favorite place in the U.S.? just favorite place period whether whether it be because of training or racing or maybe you visited and it's just an awesome place well and you can also get uh you know some kick zone media swag some t-shirts hats and stickers and stuff like that so um again patreon.com forward slash kzm uh to support the podcast and uh every single uh, dollar of that support goes back to providing more content getting better guests on the show and uh yeah just just helping grow and build enthusiasm for the nordic lifestyle thank you for listening everybody word on the trail is a kick zone media production recording and editing was done by me Brian Halligan. All the music you heard on today's podcast was recorded and produced by my talented younger brother, Michael Halligan. 
For more Nordic-specific content, head on over to kickzonemedia.com and be sure to follow Kick Zone Media on Instagram at, you guessed it, Kick Zone Media. <laughs>